Well, greetings, everyone, and welcome to Toward Wholeness. My name is Abby Odio, and I'm here with my podcast co-host, Richard Dahlstrom. Today, it is my great joy and really a privilege to welcome Dr. Richard Mao as our guest. Dr. Mao is a professor of faith and public life, the professor of faith and public life at Fuller Theological Seminary where he served previously for 20 years as the school's president. Dr. Mao has authored numerous books, all of which I would highly recommend, having not even read them all. That tells you how much I endorse this man. But many of which center on this notion of engaging with people who think differently than us, who believe different from us, and how we go about that. So I have to say this interview is particularly special for me. I had the privilege of taking a course from Dr. Mao, I believe in 2012, when I was in my last quarter at seminary, and the focus of that course was this very topic of interfaith engagement and dialogue and how we do that in friendship, how we do that in faith, how we do that in politics with people who just have different convictions than we do. And I have to say in the last eight years, I have had no shortage of opportunities to take that content and and put skin on it and embody it as across our political landscape, across our evangelical landscape, just the divisions have have really deepened. And all that's to say, Dr. Mao, I am so grateful for the, the principles that you offered in that course, which have continued to serve just as a great tool for me in my life and my ministry. So thank you. Thank you for being here today, sincerely. Hey, Abby, it's great to be back with you. And uh, also real privilege to uh, beyond with Pastor Richard. We haven't met in person, but it's just great to be with you. Well, thanks so much. I want to start with a somewhat personal question that I think will give our listeners some insight into your own kind of journey of faith and and the opportunity to know you a bit. And one window into that journey is your recent publication called Restless Faith, which came out in 2019. And in this book, you talk about sort of your growing discomfort with the label of evangelical and that that word, and particularly American evangelicalism. But ultimately, one of one of the things I found interesting is that you decided not to abandon that title. And I'd love if you could just Give us some insight on what was the cause, what was the root of that growing discomfort, and, and ultimately, why, is, why was it that you decided to still identify in that camp? Yeah, thanks, Abby. You know, my, I've had two major struggles with the word evangelical, with that label in my life. The one was back in the late 60s and early 70s. You know, those were the radical 60s. I mean, this was a time of uh, the civil rights movement, the struggle for racial justice, uh, concern about uh, American military involvement in uh, Southeast Asia, uh, the emerging uh, concern with uh, gender issues and with uh, environmental questions and the like. And at that time, it may be hard for some people to even imagine this if they weren't there, but at that time, Evangelicals were known not to be very engaged in issues of social, political, and economic life in terms of a kind of social activism. And uh, I mean, I'd been through you know years on university campuses, involved in protests, and <laughs> witnesses to various kinds of things, and uh, it was pretty discouraging. Uh, but a group of us got together uh, who had been through all of that. Uh, young people, 
who had felt very lonely as evangelicals during the 60s. And uh, we published in 1973 a a major document called the uh, Chicago Declaration of Evangelical Social Concerns, Mm. where we said you can be an evangelical and you can be committed to these issues of justice and peacemaking and a concern for the moral health of society. And uh, those were exciting times. Now, here we are decades later, and once again, I struggle with it, not because evangelicals haven't been involved, but we've been so involved (laughs) that uh, the label today, many people think, has just gotten completely politicized. And uh, it's very difficult, even in local churches at times, to uh, even talk about questions of politics because people are so divided over their loyalties, their political affiliations, the things that they care about. And I can understand why some people would say maybe the label just doesn't mean anything anymore because it's gotten so involved in a kind of political, a certain kind of political activism. The word itself, I think, is worth preserving because evangelical comes from the word evangel, the gospel. And those of us who have claimed that label really do believe that it's at the heart of the gospel that people need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that we need to affirm the full authority of God's word, the scriptures, and also that sense that something happened on the cross of Calvary that if it did not happen, we're in big trouble, that Jesus Christ shed his blood on Calvary. And because of that, it's possible to be right with God, but also to be empowered to do God's work in the world. And so there is a kind of activism. And I think we have a lot of work to do these days to uh, not just rescue the label, but to understand that uh, when it means that we need to love Jesus and have a personal relationship with Jesus, that means we ought to also care about the kinds of things that Jesus cares about. We need a lot of dialogue and discussion about what all of that comes to. Richard, I just want to thank you for that answer because it's like a breath of fresh air, honestly, in the moment in which we find ourselves. My follow-up question is particular to this season right now as well, whereby evangelicalism as a word or phrase has been in the press almost wholly united with one political party. And so it's been tempting to me to abandon the phrase for that reason, or to put a qualifier on the phrase for that Mm -hmm. reason. And so can you just speak to how you've processed that when you open the New York Times or some other paper and you see oh, 80% of evangelicals are aligned with this particular party or this particular candidate. How do you respond to that? Well, one obvious thing, Richard, is to to point out that means there's still 20% who aren't. (laughs) And, 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 you know, when you're talking about 20%, you're talking about 80%, you're, you're talking about a huge electorate. You're talking about millions and millions of votes. And so even though that 20%, and I'm going to say that 20% tend to be a younger generation. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a wonderful political scientist at University of Maryland, Janelle Wong, who is herself an evangelical. And she did a study recently on generational change. And she says, you know, the the evangelical movement, as we know it, will, will look very different 15 years from now 
because there's a, a growing uh, Asian-American uh, generation of evangelicals, uh, uh, Latino, Latinx, African-Americans, who are the, the emerging demographic in the evangelical world. And I don't want to lose those people to liberal churches. I don't want to lose those people to bad theology. When she was uh, interviewed, this Janelle Wong, about her book on NPR, the interviewer, who was kind of a clueless about a lot of this, said, well, you know, if these young blacks and young Latinos and young Asian Americans are, uh, as you say, Janelle, uh, kind of progressive about things, why do they continue to call themselves evangelical? And Janelle Wong said, because they really believe some things. You know, they believe in Jesus. They, they want people to come to know Jesus. And, and that's a marvelous thing. So I have a lot of hope for the younger generation. I think that uh, we need to preserve the label and what it stands for in order to encourage a younger generation who often disagree with their parents about political affiliation, who care about the little Mexican-American children on the borders. And I'm going to say, I'm, I'm actually, in, as, as we're talking, and we've seen a lot of uh, things in, uh, in the last couple of weeks, I'm kind of encouraged about some new things that are happening. Yeah. I was watching a protest against police brutality in Houston. And lo and behold, there was Joel Osteen leading a protest group. <laughs> and the reporter said to him, why are you here? And he said, how can I not be here? We need to take a stand against racial injustice. Mm, wow. I have bl black brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm here for them. And I thought, praise God. Joel uh, Osteen. Maybe, maybe something new is happening. <laughs> wow. It makes me think while you're talking, Dr. Mao, of um, there was a great article that was written by David Brooks called The Edge of the Inside, yes. where he talked about the fantastic opportunity that people have who don't identify necessarily with the core of the movement, but but are unable to kind of relinquish the central tenets and, and can also see the flaws within and yeah. how those people are actually the most essential when it comes to affecting change. and. I have to tell you, that article has given me hope and a sense of, as someone who's in a way part of that next generation you're talking about and just feels at times like the temptation to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, is is very strong. But it has given me such hope that actually there's a real call to responsibility and opportunity and, and ultimately, I think, hope for what the next chapter of the evangelical church might look like. And I, I agree. I think this particular chapter in the long, long history of racial injustice in our country, some of that is in a very painful but encouraging way coming to the surface as we as we see these young faith leaders, a majority of whom are people of color, really stepping into those roles in a profound way. So thank you for that word. I want to transition us now to talk a little bit more specifically about some a concept that you have talked at length about, you've written at length about, which is this notion of convicted civility and this idea that as we engage with others who may not agree with us, we can hold a posture of convicted civility. It's something that I'm going to let you define it. It's something that you've come to care about so deeply. What does that What does that phrase mean to you? And why is it so core to how you understand the role of Christians and particularly Christians in America in this moment that we're living in? 
Yeah, thank you, Abby. Yeah, I've spent a number of decades working on this, and I did a revision of my book about uh, 20 years ago. I wrote it originally back in the late 80s. People then told me, well, you know, you should update it because it's more relevant now in the year 2000 than it was in, say, 1990. And now I feel like it's even more relevant today than it was 20 years ago. I got that phrase, convicted civility, from a delightful little mention in uh, a book by the great Lutheran historian, theologian, social commentator, Martin Marty, who, who said this. Uh, and it's almost like a throwaway line. He said, but a lot of people today who are civil don't really have very strong convictions. And a lot of people who have strong convictions aren't very civil. And what we need is convicted civility. Mm. And of course, civility is, uh, you might say, public politeness. It's uh, a willingness to engage people who are different from ourselves in positive ways in public life. And uh, I really like that. And then it hit me that that's the very idea that uh, the apostle talks about in First Peter 3, a verse that I was, as an evangelical teenager, I heard an awful lot. Uh, Always be ready to give to anyone who asks of you a reason for the hope that lies within you. Wow, you know, stand up for the gospel, be firm. You know, if that high school public school teacher is talking about evolution, challenge her because you yeah. gotta you gotta stand up for your convictions. But seldom did they go on to the rest of it, where he says, and you can find different translations, but do so with gentleness and reverence. And that idea or gentleness and respect. That idea that uh, when we disagree with somebody, we need to do it with respect toward them. And so you get the conviction, always give a reason for the hope that lies within you, but also civility, a gentleness, a a reverence. And when we're encountering people that we disagree with in in public life, for example, or even in the local church, at the very least, we're talking about people who are created in the, in the image of the God and Father of Jesus Christ. And, mm. and so they're created worth. But, you know, Abby and Richard, we, we also need to cultivate a, a, an awareness of the need to learn from people with whom we disagree. For one thing, I mean, I, my, my dialogue with my Jewish friends and, you know, Abby, we've talked a lot about this in, in class. For 2,000 years, we've been pretty mean to Jews. I mean, we've been horrible on occasions. Uh, and we have a lot to learn from our, about our own sins. And uh, some of the stories that our Jewish friends can tell us are, are stories that we need to hear. But even more than that, they, they have experiences, they have convictions that God can use in our own lives to strengthen our own faith and our understanding of the will of God. And so there's just stuff that we need to learn from people with whom we disagree and and to do it in a way that acknowledges that what we see on the surface isn't what identifies them. I mean, I have friends who have political convictions very different than mine, and they like uh, certain political leaders that I don't like, and they're very enthusiastic about them. But, you know, the way they voted doesn't define who they are. These are people with their own hopes and fears, their own loves, their own struggles. And I need to get below the surface, just as we have been learning in new ways how we need to get beneath the surface of racial identity. And even the kind of uh, uniforms that you wear as a policeman in life, we need to get to 
the deeper humanness that we encounter in people who we may think we really seriously disagree with. Dr. Mao, I love that. I heard that verse as well growing up quite a bit. And I think about how when I heard those words presented, it was always in terms of like, you you know everything, you have the truth. (laughs) And so present it, but do it in a way that's kind and in a way that, but I, I love the, when we overlay that with the kind of humility that we see in scripture that Jesus both embodied and and invited us into, there's a sense that we actually approach these conversations with an understanding that we do have things to learn, that it's not just about being nice. It's actually about being humble and coming to another understanding that that our perspective is just our perspective and that there is a great deal for me to actually gain from someone else to not just bestow upon them. And I think that's a, a really timely reminder for many of us, myself included. And I do think that, and this is where I want to place a great emphasis on the local church. I, I do think that we learn, Abby, we learn that kind of humility in a profound way in times of worship. I mean, uh, you think of the psalmist in 139, one of my favorite psalms. And at a certain point, he, he says, sounds very arrogant to me. You know, he says, oh, Lord, I hate your enemies with a perfect hatred. You know, God, you and I are on the same side. You can count on me. But then it's as if he just stops. And the next verse says, search me, O Lord, and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me (laughs) and lead me in the way everlasting. And, you know, coming to church is a search me, O Lord experience. Mm -hmm. And we're coming out of those fights and those arguments and those daily tensions and watching all the stuff on the news. And we come into the direct presence of the living God. And we say, here we are, Lord. See if there's any wicked way in us. We need to be working on that more in terms of what it means for our public life. An old friend of mine, the late dean of Harvard Divinity School, Ron Tiemann, in one of his books said, you know, the local church needs to be a kind of workshop in developing the kind of character that is necessary for public life. And uh, that's not sort of taking political stands and, you know, talking about public policy. It's it's learning what it means to, to come before God and acknowledge our own failures, our own finitude, our own sinfulness, and asking the Lord to correct us. And very often that may mean listening to people with whom we disagree as we walk out of church. Mm. Richard, you're uh, listening to you. I feel like I'm talking to Yoda or something because uh, you just have so much wisdom and it's a gift to hear what you have to say. I'm a little bit older as well, and I I can identify with your 70s comment about Peter Passage. But, you know, I, I remember I pastored a house church for a number of years up in the deep cascades of Washington State. And we had within our community, both someone who worked for the Department of Natural Resources and their job was to cut down trees. And we had a guy who worked for a nonprofit who was on the hunt for spotted owls to prevent the cutting down of trees. And uh, we would, you know, they'd both come to our, our gathering and they would have you know, some heated debates now and again, but then there was never a doubt that we're worshiping the same God, that we love the same Jesus, that we're on a journey together, that none of us have all the truth. My follow-up question to what you're saying is, as my years of ministry have gone on now, because that was about 30 years ago, I would say, these days I find myself almost self-censoring because I go, oh, if I talk about climate change, I'm going to be labeled 
a Democrat. If I talk about protecting life in the womb, I'm going to be labeled a Republican. It seems that things that are actually kingdom issues these days carry a political label and then people stop listening because of the label. So for those of us in leadership, what's your what's your counsel in, in such an environment? Yeah, well, if you ever get the answer, let me know because <laughs> <laughs> that's a profound question. And I want to say this. I, a lot of people complain that these days we're not talking about these things in the local congregation and that you're standing in the pulpit looking out on a congregation that's that if they were to talk about climate change or to talk about immigration, they'd be yelling at each other. You know, there's a powerful sense in which, though, people do want to see the church as a safe place that they can go into without having to get into the same kind of arguments that they've been watching on Fox News or on CNN, you know. And I think that we have a, a, a challenge to go deeper than the issues these days to really talk about, yeah, that Ron Thiemann thing, the character, the, the spiritual formation, because ultimately the question is, who are we and, and what identifies us? And, you know, one of my verses in the scriptures in Book of Revelation that has given me so much guidance for many decades now is the great hymn of Revelation 5. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed men and women for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made us into a kingdom and priests mm. unto our God. In mm. that sense that when we come to church, we're, we're coming into a community that acknowledges that being an American being a white male, being straight, <laughs> uh, being a Democrat or a Republican isn't what defines me. What defines me is that I belong to Jesus. Amen. And that I am then made one with, I mean, I, I could tell a long story here and I won't, but I happened to go to Pyongyang for <laughs> complicated reasons. But there was a, a worshiping church in Pyongyang that's one of four legally permitted worshiping services in North Korea. And uh, we attended that day, and there was a choir there, an old Presbyterian <laughs> wearing the robes, uh, an old Presbyterian building. And the choir sang, what a friend we have in Jesus, this North Korean choir. And when, we got to the, when they got to the verse, and we all knew the, the words in English, are we weak and heavy laden, burdened with a load of care? The third woman from the right in the front row sang that with tears streaming down her face. And I thought, I'm here on a, on a certain project. But all of a sudden, I realized I'm not a, a tourist here. This is a family gathering. <laughs> mm. That is my sister in Jesus Christ. Mm. And I can never again think of North Korea without thinking about the fact that I've, I've got a sister there. You know, mm -hmm. I've got family there, people who have been saved through the blood of Jesus Christ and who are trusting in Jesus. And that doesn't solve all the foreign policy questions, but it certainly makes a difference. For me to, to remember that I can't just say North Korea without also thinking of people reading the Bible in North Korea. That I can't talk about the policies toward Afghanistan without recognizing that when we're bombing in Afghanistan, we're also bombing churches mm. and hurting the cause of the gospel. And there has to be ways in which just praying for a congregation in Afghanistan, if that could become a part of our worship. Mm. Uh, that could begin to transform us mm. uh, because those are, too, are our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And uh, I, I, I think one of the, <laughs> Richard, you'll appreciate this, but I once complained that one of the worst sermons I ever heard was on the rich young ruler. And the guy preached the whole sermon saying on the part where Jesus looked at him. And he says, you know, eye contact is so important. <laughs> you know, there's a whole sermon on eye contact. You know. But, you know, in a profound sense, I was thinking about this this week. When we see the encounter between black protesters and white policemen, and they look into each other's eyes, there's something very important about that. And we need to find ways in which we can, as it were, make eye contact with people who are different from ourselves and see the image of God, and in some cases, see the, the saving work of Jesus Christ in people's lives. I have so much hope for what the church can do, the local church can do, in instilling in people a sense that belonging to Jesus Christ makes a difference in how I see other people, because God has seen me in my weakness and my frailty. Wow, Richard, that's beautiful. Thank you for that. I love how this notion of worship is something has become a theme in a way that I wasn't expecting. And it's really beautiful that you're a good Presbyterian, a good reformed theologian. It's all kind of <laughs> landing on that ground. And I love it. I want to end. I feel like we could end with that answer you just gave, but I want to end with one, one final question here, just because I personally want to know the answer to this. So it's a bit selfish, but we're nearing an election that we all know is shaping up to be one of the most divisive and difficult in the history of our country given the tribalism, given the complications and intricacies that technology has allowed for, given the ways that we've come to relate to one another. And I just wonder if there's a word of advice that you would have for us, especially those of us who are feeling a little bit hopeless about the ways to bridge some of these differences and, and maybe not even sure we want to because we feel so strong in our conviction about what is right and what is not. And how do we engage in a way that embodies the person of Christ in this season? Is there any kind of practical thoughts that you have for us in closing? Yeah, thank you, Abby. That, you know, I, I, I do think that the worst thing we can do in all of this is preach political sermons, in a sense, as, as Richard pointed out, that, you know, you, you use a word like climate, or <laughs> you use a word like immigration or abortion. And uh, people automatically say, oh, well, that's a pro-Trump sermon or an anti-Trump sermon, you know. Sure. And uh, we don't, that's not communicating. It's not really getting through to people. In many ways, preaching about political issues of public concern, the worst time to do that is in an election year because everything will be heard as uh, trying to influence. But I, I do think that it is so important as we approach a difficult election to get people somehow thinking about what is your identity? What are you ultimately trusting in? You know, Psalm 146, it says, God is the God of the widow, the orphan, the stranger in the land, the beggar at the gate, the political prisoner. It begins by saying, put not your trust in princes. <laughs> you know, don't put your trust in, in this or that candidate, this or that political party. Put your trust in God, uh, the God of Jacob, the, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that mean when you mark your ballot? It, just to get people thinking about what it means. Yeah. Uh, because we often don't think about what it means. And yeah, if you're going to vote for a candidate because you are against abortion, 
you also need to be thinking about what your views are. Little kids who are already born and who are separated from their parents, you know. Yeah. Uh, and we, we need to find ways of humanizing that, of personalizing that, rather than making an issue of a policy. Hmm. And it may very well be that we need to find ways in which we can uh, have some Latin American mother ask us for prayers, hmm. where we really personalize those things. And it reinforces our sense of who we are and what our real allegiance is. That's, I think, the crucial issue that we face. And I, if we're not going to face that issue, then whether, whether you vote one way or another is, is really not very interesting from a, an evangelical point of view. Right. Yeah, I hear in that the just the utter importance of finding avenues to people who are different than we are. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that is a beautiful challenge in this moment in history where we have a lot of people in front of us who think and talk like we do. And and you talked about the local church earlier, and, and I keep coming back to the reality that, and one of the things I deeply appreciate about the church where Richard and I pastor is the diversity of the body. I think the local church seems to be a place where there are still people sitting shoulder to shoulder who who don't hold all the same convictions. And so how do we engage with one another? And I just think your work, Dr. Mao, but also just your example has mm. given given us hope that that is indeed possible as a, as a way forward. So thank you. Well, thank you and, and blessings on the two of you. I'm so, I'm impressed and excited about the questions you're asking and what that means for the kind of ministry you're engaged in. My only comment at the end, uh, Richard, is uh, I fear we're going to have to have you back again a second time because uh, we only got through about half our questions and every every statement you made elicited two more questions for me. So I just want to echo my gratitude because what you've brought to this little time together is decades of wisdom that you've been able to crystallize. So we are the grateful recipients of that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Abby. Yeah, absolutely. What a joy to reconnect with you, Dr. Mao. And um, I'm just reminded of, you know, how refreshing it is to be in the presence of someone who who holds and embodies such um, compassion and care for our culture and our world. And it, it truly gives me great hope. So um, thank you, Dr. Mao. Thank you, listeners, for joining us on this episode of Toward Wholeness. And we look forward to being with you again soon. Go in peace. <laughs> <laughs>